0: Called Challenge 2.0. The earliest European settlers in this country would not have survived without the knowledge, the assistance, and the generosity of the indigenous people that they encountered. The irony is that that was repaid by taking the lands of these Native Americans, forcing them onto reservations, and limiting their access to traditional foods, replacing them with highly processed, often unhealthy sources of nutrition. In this episode of Challenge, we continue our conversation with a man called the sous-chef who is seeking to right those wrongs. Well, we're very fortunate to have with us Sean Sherman, uh, known as the sous-chef. He is the founder and CEO chef of the sous-chef. It is uh, displayed in this wonderful cookbook that he came out with that won an award. And he has won several, as we mentioned, James Beard uh, Awards, which is a very rare honor. And one that you received not just once, but several times. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, as I read about your personal path, both on your website, we're going to provide a link so people can explore that further. It seems that you drew together diverse threads in a way that led to a very unique path, uh, working in restaurants as a teenager, field work for the Forest Service, and a year spent on the Mexican coast. Can you tell about how those were? both different influences, but also how they came together to inspire you.
1: I feel like when I finally found my path and the work that I'm doing now and the epiphany that I had of um, really focusing on Indigenous foods and trying to understand my Lakota heritage and just that realization that, you know, um, it was just so invisible that even in my own knowledge, having grown up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, that I could you know, name hundreds of European recipes easily off the top of my head in European languages, um, and even knowing the foods in those languages, and then knowing less than a handful of Lakota recipes that weren't influenced by um, some, something on the outside. You know. So it was you know, really striking. And as I continued to grow, I just realized that I'd kind of always been on this path had been kind of the perfect mix of things, growing up on the reservation, hunting at a very young age, spending a lot of time outdoors, um, working for the Forest Service and really connecting with plants and, you know, having to learn the name of every plant in the Northern Black Hills and every tree Mm -hmm. and how to eat them and all the things. And, you know, working in restaurants from the very... You, from a very young age, as soon as I turned thirteen years old, and just moving forward and just developing a really strong skill in the kitchen and becoming an executive chef, and almost also just growing up in an era where we read a lot of books because we didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of TV. Um, so I spent a lot of time in libraries out of curiosity well before the internet was available. and, You know, that's how I learned things. And that's how I taught myself how to cook. So when I became a chef, I didn't go to cooking school. I went and bought their cookbooks and actually I didn't even buy them. I just read them at the, at the bookstores and put them back on the shelves. But, um, (laughs) um, but, you know, I was able to find an education, you know, and uh, through this stuff. And a lot of it was hard work and a lot of it was just practice. And sometimes you, sometimes you make things great and sometimes you don't. And that's just the way it is. That's how you learn. Um. So, again, looking back on all of those pieces, like it was just the perfect mix of experiences to kind of find this path. Mm-hmm. And I
0: remember from uh, reading a little bit about your story, a trip, you took some time off, you went to the Mexican coast, and I believe that was really influential in steering you toward the direction that you've been following since then. Uh, can you share with us a little bit more about that year you spent there?
1: Absolutely, because I'd kind of gotten off a really tough chef job in Minneapolis, where I was working way, way too many hours, I was overseeing three restaurants in Minneapolis, and had been overseeing like I think there was 160 cafes across the country. I was working for this really large fitness corporation at the time, and it was just uh, it was too much. And um, so when I left, I just you know grabbed a backpack, a guitar, and headed down to Mexico and landed on the Nayarit coast in a little town called San Pancho, about an about an hour north of Puerto. Vallarta ish. And, you know, it was a very quiet small town. And as I was there, I just, you know, took my uh, time to kind of adapt to throw away the cell phone and to really just start reading a lot of books again. And I became really curious about the indigenous group that was down there. And they were called the Wechel because they had this really beautiful artwork with all this really colorful um, beadwork and everything. And there was so much mythology and richness. And I just saw a lot of connections there. And I just kind of clicked that. You know, we're all indigenous to this region to the art to the to to North America like they're just like my long distant indigenous cousins mm-hmm. and it just started me to think about that perspective of things, you know and uh, the cultures and like the commonalities that I was witnessing um not only in their art but um just you know just in all sorts of things, some of their ceremonies and even their sense of humor you know, I just feel like there's a this really strong of humor with a lot of the indigenous communities um so a lot of that was just very comforting to me. And then I just kind of had this epiphany of just realizing that, like, I should have been focused on my own food, like i had been learning foods from all over the world, like I knew how to do sushi really well, I knew a lot of Ethiopian recipes, I knew a lot of West African recipes, I knew a lot of Caribbean, or or not, sorry, I knew a lot of Mediterranean recipes, and and European, of course, from basically everywhere, and just realized that I had almost no idea what true Lakota foods were, you know, Mm -hmm. and when I I like, I remember calling my mom and saying like, Hey, do you have any recipes from, from your parents or any cookbooks from Pine Ridge? You know, I'm just curious, like what, you know, what true Lakota food is. And she's like, Mm. yeah, I got a cookbook for you. So she gets me this cookbook and it's this little paperback. And when I opened it up, it was not what I was looking for because it basically read like a Lutheran church cookbook, you know, it just Mm. like, uh, it's like I'm looking for foods that don't have cream of mushroom soup in it. Basically (laughs) is what I.
0: Well, uh, is it true that you were influenced while you were down in Mexico, just to close out that part of the conversation, you were influenced by somebody called Julia child.
1: Uh, so after Mexico, I moved to Montana and I worked for my, um, uh, mother-in-law. Um, she married my father and, uh, they, she comes from a family in Montana where they have a rather large ranch out there outside of red lodge, Montana, which is in the South part of there just above Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And, um, Her aunt's name happened to be Julia Child's, um, not Julia Child, the famous cookbook um, and TV personality, um, but also a lovely lady who was really in tuned with all the plants out there in Montana who had a kind of sustainable little farm situation there on the ranch um, where she's growing goats and ducks and chickens and a really large farm and using a lot of wild foods. And um, she just – so after Mexico, I moved to Montana to work at that ranch, and I just – know ran the kitchen but spent a lot of time with her wandering around um, you know gathering things and bringing them back in the kitchen and just playing with them you know and giving myself that time to be creative and to kind of reconnect with plants after quite a few years um, since at that point it had been since I'd worked at the Forest Service so it was really nice to be back in this area where I was kind of right on the edge of the forest and uh, right on the plains.
0: It seems there's A lot of uh, increased attention uh, being paid to either ethnobotany or at least the values of plants. I'm thinking of uh, uh, braiding sweetgrass from Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, Do you see that uh, as a trend that is maybe not just a niche movement, but something that is beginning to broaden and maybe uh, have people question about uh, question some of their assumptions about where they get food?
1: I think that it is opening up a lot of conversations. There's a lot of interest because we cross over with, you know, people with lots of different interests because some people are foodies. Some people really like Native American cultures. Some people really like wild foods. Some people really like history, but there's always some kind of connection out there. And I feel like within Indigenous communities, there's always this sense of this appreciation with plants because our ancestors had been had a deep relationship with the world and the plants around us, you know, so we still have lots of stories. We still have lots of usages of some of these plants whether like we're here in minnesota where wild rice and maple and ramps and fiddleheads and things like that are a huge part of the native diets you know and you know some people are just learning about these things because they're pieces that you don't typically find on the grocery store sometimes you know Mm -hmm. people don't what aronia berries were, or choke cherries were, or some of these things that are out there in the wild, you know, and, you know, there's just so much food and there's plenty of really talented foragers out there. Um, but I think it's really important to understand that indigenous peoples around the globe had that same key to live sustainably with the world around them, mm-hmm. utilizing um You know, primarily a lot of the wild foods, but also if they're in areas where there was a lot of agriculture, then they're also using a mix of domesticated plants to to have everything at 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 hand. You know, because humans need certain building blocks to survive. Like we need something to get energy from. We need some kind of carbohydrate or or fat, and we need to be able to understand where people were getting these things from in various regions around the area. Because people have been living here for thousands and thousands of years, and had figured out really in Genius ways um, within their food systems of how to survive um, through sometimes really harsh climates, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's just a lot to learn out there. So I think that the more we connect with the nature around us, the more we look out our window and can identify trees and plants, then the better we are. Um, I always tease that our kids can name more of Kim Kardashian's ex-boyfriends and, and tree species right now, you know?
0: That's perhaps an uncomfortable comparison, but probably a very apt one. <laughs> <laughs> fast forward a little bit, uh, Sean, you followed this path, and you've ended up opening uh, both a restaurant in Minneapolis and then also the Indigenous Food Lab. Uh, Tell us a little bit about both and how they relate to each other.
1: Yeah, so moving back to Minneapolis, I just started really working and doing this. Um, I didn't start the company the sous chef officially in 2000 until until 2014 Um, but I had moved back to Minnesota from Montana and I started actively trying to do some of these dinners here and there so I took on a couple of catering gigs I took on uh, start just tried to do some pop-up dinners featuring some indigenous foods and just being really creative with them and you know when I started the company in 2014 I quit my last chef job officially and started working for myself and just started doing that and then people started asking me to talk about it so i had no idea that like um the the speaking situation would be a thing you know but um that's been a big part of this work is going around and sharing this perspective and you know I had to teach myself how to utilize a, a keynote and and a powerpoint and stuff like that and tell a story that could last an hour and keep people engaged <laughs> um, but i became really good at it. it was something that i was kind of natural at of just being up on stage and being able to talk talk and talk and talk and get through all this stuff and um and just you know using that platform really intentionally so you know again like talking about a lot of history talking about a lot of things that we should be able to think about changing in our food systems and just, you know, using that for that platform for as much good as possible and, you know, working towards building the restaurant. And as I was uh, working towards the restaurant concept, I also realized that there was a greater need um, that a nonprofit would be a better solution to some of these problems too, because with a for-profit business, you're in kind of a constant hustle mode, especially with a food business where restaurants are very dangerous, you know, and, you, you know, basically you're built, they're built to fail almost, you know, completely. Um, and it's just a constant struggle and especially post pandemic, like opening a restaurant during a pandemic is not an easy yeah. feat. <laughs> yeah. And um, But the nonprofit, you know, was able to see a better vision and I was able to see more work. So we created what is Natives or North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, ATIFS for short. Um, and under Natives, we created a kitchen called Indigenous Food Lab, which is a place that we could do a lot more research and development for Uh, just furthering our own education around indigenous foods. We're about ready to open up a market space where our community will have access to some place that will sell lots of indigenous food products retail. We'll be able to get that opened online. We also created a native classroom so we can teach all sorts of indigenous education and curriculum, everything about food preservation, culinary cooking, crafting, medicinals language, whatever it might be, just creating a safe place to um, teach those classes um, in our community but also record everything through video and put everything up on the website to make all this education accessible and then our goal is just being a regional center point for kind of training and developing um, especially indigenous communities and peoples so we can work with entrepreneurs we can work with tribes and we just want to help develop more food operations out there so if it's a tribe it maybe it's a food service operation out of a community center or elder center or maybe they have a large casino and they want to open up an entire restaurant theme and we'll be able to do that and we can use ourself as a training and development point We can use the restaurant as a place for for people to work with us and train with us. And then we set this up to replicate, so we're already working on spreading them around, so we're already planting seeds to open up indigenous food lab extensions in Anchorage, Alaska, Bozeman, Montana, Rapid City, South Dakota right now, Mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of other um, situations and areas out there that are very interested, but the goal was just to place these in urban regions all over North America, because we can cross colonial borders, we can be in Canada, we can be in Mexico, Mm -hmm. and eventually be in South America, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, um, Southeast Asia, India, Africa. You know, it's just trying to create something that stewards indigenous knowledge and culture for future generations, but actively create systems to develop better food systems for those communities also.
0: What has been the response, Sean? Uh, Let's begin with your restaurant. When people started coming into your restaurant uh, that you had opened up, and obviously you had a very good formula there because you... Uh, managed to make it through the pandemic, which as we know, was deadly to uh, many, too many restaurants across the United States. But what was the reaction when people started coming into your restaurant and sampling uh, the foods?
1: Uh, It was overly positive from the very beginning, like we already had built a really large following before the restaurant opened, because we didn't Mm -hmm. get the restaurant open until July of 21. And, um, and, you know, it was really touching for a lot of indigenous Indigenous peoples, too, because as an Indigenous person, you never get to go out and visit uh, a Native American restaurant hardly at all. You know, there's a handful out right. there across the nation, but very few. Um, so it's not a typical um, restaurant concept to walk into and to be able to, you know, sit down, see Indigenous peoples working, see the food on the menu, see the language on the menu, hear the music coming over the speakers, um, and just taste everything. You know, it was overwhelming for a lot of people. So we saw a lot of people just like, you know, break into tears. And mm. it still happens. So it's just really touching to some people we can, you know, people, some people would say like, this must be how an Italian feels when they walk into an Italian restaurant, and like, well, maybe not in America, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, in a sense. <laughs> and then the uh, indigenous food lab, uh,
0: what sort of response have you had from various groups that they have this as a resource?
1: Well, you know, we're still kind of forming. um, So we're so close to having our first physical model kind of set up and going. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're just, I'm just really looking forward for the kind of impact that these systems can have, um, creating this access to education, creating videos around it, opening up a situation where we can invite uh, Indigenous peoples from our community to teach class about something that they really like to do. You know, maybe it's language, maybe art, maybe it's beadwork or quill work, or maybe it's a whole animal butchery or cooking, but, you know, creating a system where they can make a little bit of money teaching it and we can preserve it and put it up for everybody to have access to Um, and just making that replicable so we can do that basically everywhere, you know, and, you know, and just creating in this little market space, you know, as we open up more of these food labs, it'll carry with it some kind of marketplace, which will also create a system for distribution so we can move Mm -hmm. foods around. And we also got USDA licensing to kind of practice to see if we can work towards being um, micro to medium sized co-packers to kind of erase that hurdle of trying to get food out there on the market, um, and just really um, creating systems that people can come up with a good idea and we can help them get it up there with not with not as much effort with less hurdles, you know, um, and just you know so people can really. Um, you know, find some work and find some ways to make a living off of doing things that they really like and to really push healthy foods out there is the biggest thing. Cause, you know, we cut out, we cut away cl- like things like fry bread and stuff in our diet because there's just so much more out there than that. And we just really want to do everything we can to entice people to eat healthier, um, to think uh, a little bit differently about where foods come from and why they're purchasing them and who they're purchasing from. So you're not just buying it from a big company because it's easy and convenient. Who's culturally appropriating somebody else, Mm -hmm. but, you know, buying it from working really hard to, to, and believes in their product. And, you know, so there's just a lot of opportunity for that kind of stuff.
0: In terms of your business uh, the food lab, but, Also, in a broader sense of trying to shift people's dietary expectations and the relationship they develop with food, what sort of obstacles are you facing or have you faced or are you aware of because of the corporate control? I understand there are, relatively speaking, about six major players in that Uh, in terms of corporate control, both of food distribution, uh, creation and also marketing.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're obviously starting off very small scale, but, you know, our purchasing power is getting rather large with just two with one or two kitchens, one restaurant and one nonprofit kitchen. Mm-hmm market space opening up but you know we're just going to tackle things as we go we're just kind of growing this from the ground up, up literally you know and we're just going to see where it takes us but we're trying to create better support systems and because we're a nonprofit, we are getting some rather large funding from some big players out there which does help a lot and you know there's a lot of work to do and you know not everything that we'll try will work but we're just going to at least attempt to make things happen because the purpose of this is just creating a system again that will steward indigenous knowledge culture and food and create food access for future generations to come and create something that can move beyond my lifetime, you know, to create something that can be there for future generations in general. Um, So for me, it's just like, I feel like I have X amount of years in my life to accomplish anything. And I just really want to use all this time very wisely and to build as much as I can to help the next generations.
0: What are your hopes then, Sean, in terms of uh, future generations, young people that are alive now and those coming? You referred to the fact that, you want to see this continue on beyond your lifetime, how would you express your hopes?
1: I would hope that um, we can uh, get a little bit closer to nature. That we can have more community gardens. That we can preserve a lot of these indigenous seeds. That we can stand up to big corporations trying to trademark a lot of these indigenous varietals for themselves because it's all a power play, just trying to control food and food systems. I'm hoping that we can retain a lot of these indigenous seed varietals within indigenous communities. I'm hoping that you know we can really celebrate indigenous foods, not just here in North America, but beyond, and see a lot of other other. people and it's really happening like there is this large indigenous food sovereignty movement bubbling up not just here but everywhere Mm -hmm. um and you know we've been you know been working at it really hard since uh, for quite a while now Um, but we're seeing a lot of movement you know we're seeing a lot more chefs we're seeing a lot more people get interested in farming because we're going to need a lot more people to deal with these huge pieces coming up you know there's going to be this massive crisis that we're just now walking into and we're not being very smart about it you know we're still allowing giant companies to suck up as much water as they want to for just a few hundred bucks a year to make millions of dollars in plastic bottles you know And as we're watching the depletion of things like the Oglala aquifer and this water crisis in the Southwest and California, things are going to continue to get worse until we start to get smarter, you know, and like we're, it's probably going to be too little too late because we allow politicians to decide everything, which is not a good place to be. We need a lot more local control over what's going on with our land spaces and our you know and what and what we're seeing in real time um and so there's there's a, i'm hoping that you know there's a lot of big changes that the next generations can make um with probably because of the mistakes from from of our future gener- or from our previous generations mm-hmm. and even current um, but you know it's just laying out um, a better path for people and how can we better be better humans in general and how can we live healthier and how can we stay away from overprocessed foods and junk foods that have very little nutritional value that just you know create more money for the health industry.
0: If you were to summarize for people watching who will have the feeling and I know they will uh, watching or listening via our podcast uh, who would like to do something to be of assistance Uh, who would like to do something to make a difference. If you were to offer them a couple of thoughts as to what they could do, what would they be?
1: Well, I would hope that people just try to learn a little bit more about the land that they're standing on and some of the struggles that indigenous peoples had to go through wherever they might be. Um, really starting to open up their eyes more to really think about the plants around them and how they could create a relationship with them because some things are food, some things are medicine, some things you can craft with and start to see the world differently, you know, and I would hope that people could start to be aware of some of these indigenous food sovereignty projects happening up, uh, popping up all over the place and supporting That's them it's an Indigenous chef, an Indigenous farm, or farmer, or a food producer, or whatever they might be. Um, But just being a little bit more aware, you know, but history, I think, is a huge part of it. I encourage people to read books like uh, Indigenous People's History of the United States, Mm -hmm. or the Braiding Sweetgrass book that you mentioned earlier. And there's just a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of information out there that people should be continuing to learn and grow from.
0: To wrap this up, it's been said that the climate crisis, the environmental crisis is at its very core a crisis of uh, ethics and of spirit will you agree that that also applies to some of the food problems that we face and how could we address that aspect
1: yeah i mean it's gonna be a big thing and we've been seeing it happen for a while because like as we're tapped into things like maple um literally and tapped into things like wild rice here in minnesota yeah. Uh, that you know, we're seeing these these changes happening in weather patterns, and the like the the typical time of year when these things should be happening, and it's shifting. You know, or you know, just the, some of the the water getting way too warm, even just by a few degrees, but it messes with all the fish, it messes with all the plants, and we're seeing you know um, things like wild rice, like kind of disappearing on the southern edges as these waters are warming hmm. up. So we're going to have to deal with a lot of this. And, you know, we have really no uh, choice but to be adaptable and to be creative and to be able to move forward, but to be smarter, you know, which is why you see a lot of indigenous communities standing up against big pipelines, because they know it's not a matter of if those pipelines leak, but when, how much more damage. They're going to cause, you know, and will their future generations have access to some of their some of these things like wild rice out there because of those pipelines. And we should be moving away from big oil in general when it comes down to it. You know, there's a lot more clean energy. And, you know, there's it's insane that again that we're allowing politicians to debate this because it's about it's not about humanity, it's about money for them, you know. We just really need to be a lot more smarter about how we make big systematic changes on whole as nations or on a global scale.
0: Well, Sean, thank you so much. Uh, I think you've opened a lot of eyes and a lot of hearts through the work that you have been doing and that you're continuing to do. I think if there were, uh, if there was any regret, it's that you're in Minneapolis and many of the people that are watching the TV program, at least, are going to be here in the Puget Sound area. But uh, uh, again, thank you so much. And we just mentioned again that uh an inspiration that some of you might seek is in sean's book the Sioux chef's indigenous kitchen
1: thank you so much for having me and just happy to share
0: well thank you so much for your time and best of luck and best wishes to you on all your endeavors all right appreciate it thanks much sean and thank you all for joining us on this edition of challenge 2.0 we hope you'll join us again next week seattle is also beginning to see indigenous restaurants and food sources The most recent is All All. It's located in Pioneer Square and operated by the Chief Seattle Club. Another is Off the Res, located at the University of Washington's Burke Museum. It also operates a food truck. There's the pop-up Native Soul, and Birch Basket Catering.